This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. Again, I'm the host, David Intracasso. During this podcast, we'll discuss efforts to expand Medicare reimbursement for telehealth and remote monitoring. With me to discuss the topic is the Alliance for Connected Care's Krista Droback. Krista, welcome to the program. Thank you. Krista's bio is posted on the podcast website. On background, telehealth and remote monitoring services enable physicians to consult with patients out of the clinical practice setting and collect patient data via in-home sensors. These technologies also allow for real-time patient care via online video and for the transmission of documents and digital images. Currently, Medicare reimbursement for these technologies is extremely limited due to what are known as originating and distant site requirements. While the Medicare program in Sun spends well over $500 billion per year, Medicare reimbursement for telehealth services in 2014 was $14 million. Healthcare or telehealth rather reimbursement policies under Medicare are, however, increasingly seen as out of step with consumer demand and other payers. For example, between 08 and 14, there was a 550% increase in Medicare's distant site visits. Telehealth is ever increasingly used in the VA and the Medicaid program within the Indian Health Service and among commercial payers because performance data shows, among other things, the use of these technologies reduce ED visits, hospital and nursing home admissions, and lengths of stay, and increases patient adherence to care. With me again to discuss efforts to expand Medicare telehealth coverage is Krista Droback. Krista, so with that on background, let me start by asking you about a definition. I mentioned Medicare's originating site requirement. What does that mean? The last time that Congress created legislation on telemedicine, telemedicine was still very much thought of as a rural issue. We know today that the commercial marketplace is full of telemedicine in urban areas and suburban areas, but back then it really was defined as helping rural patients receive access to care, either from specialists or even just primary care in rural areas. So the way they set up the statute is that patients have to be in an originating site and the originating site is listed in the statute as a hospital, a, a rural health clinic, a, um, a physician office, a federally qualified health center, et cetera. It's a physical infrastructure. It's a, it's a physician space. And then from there, they would be uh, beamed into the space of another physician. So the distance site is also a physical infrastructure where physicians generally are. Um, so again, the idea was that a rural patient would travel to a local clinic and receive treatment from a distant clinic. We all know now that telemedicine is totally different. You can get it in your home, you can get it at your, at your office. So these originating site requirements are very, very limiting um, because people um, generally are wanting to just stay home. And that accounts for the slight dollar value in Medicare reimbursement annually. Let me ask next, how are payers and providers apart from Medicare using telehealth technology and to what effect concerning care quality and cost efficiency. This subject is debated. MedPAC recently debated it a few weeks ago, and your organization has published 
at least one literature view as it relates to what quality and cost efficiency findings there are. So our position is that telemedicine is medicine. You have a physician treating a patient, and that's medicine. The modality is less important. Um, the way it's being used in the commercial market mainly is primary care and behavioral health. Those are the two sort of first um, out-of-the-box ways that people are using telemedicine. Now, when I define telemedicine, I'm talking about real-time uh, video visits or telephone visits between a patient and a provider. There's also store and forward, There's um, which, you know, radiology, dermatology, I mean, they've been using that for years. Very few hospital systems have, you know, on-site radiology anymore. They send it out. Um, and that's essentially store and forward technology. I'm not referring to that. The rural and originating sites apply to the real-time face-to-face visits. Um, and again, it's happening in the commercial market with um, employers offering to their employees the opportunity to access telemedicine through a vendor. So usually an employer will pay a, um, a per member per month fee, and then their employee can access telemedicine anytime, 24 hours a day. And it can be by phone or by video. And generally the conditions that people are accessing telemedicine for are sinusitis, upper respiratory illness, UTI, uh, pink eye, it's, it's very consistent across the different vendors, and it's, it's a lot of primary care. Now, you mentioned behavioral health. How, how is that? What is that? So that's a newer form of telemedicine. I think once we figured out primary care, a lot of the vendors now are moving into behavioral health because there's such a shortage of behavioral health specialists, and it's an easy sort of use of telemedicine, right? You don't necessarily need to examine a patient. You need to be able to communicate with them. And so telemedicine, that's a good use case for it. Uh, so Teladoc and uh, MD Live and some of the other vendors are have recruited uh, behavioral health specialists. There's a lot more rules around behavioral health. For example, the medications that you could prescribe, those are subject to the state-by-state um, -state pharmacy boards. You can't prescribe controlled substances. And the DEA has actually interpreted some rules around behavioral health prescribing that are not favorable to telemedicine. So we've been trying to get those changed. So basically, in sum, it's about providing therapy services over the right. phone. Right. Okay. I did mention your organization has contracted for lit reviews. Can you give me a brief overview of what those lit reviews found? Sure. So we think it's really important to build the evidence base around telemedicine because the policymakers that are in charge of this generally believe that if you add payment to something, it will cost money rather than save money. Our belief is that use of telemedicine replaces more expensive in-person care and that it will save money. So the first thing we did was uh, we commissioned a paper from Rashid Bashar, who is a professor at the University of Michigan, and he did a literature review of both telemedicine and remote monitoring studies. He was very um, particular about the methodologies of the studies that he chose to review. They all had high ends. They were all randomized controlled studies. They were very solid methodologies. He didn't want the integrity of the paper to be compromised. So I have full faith in that paper, and it showed overwhelming 
overwhelmingly good results on the cost and quality side. So that paper's on our website. The other one we recently did was from an actuary. We commissioned an actuary to look at the replacement rate of in-person care in telemedicine. And we found about 83% of the time, people do not need any follow-up care. So they can take care of their needs with a telemedicine visit. And this is commercial market data. And we found that uh, you could save $45 per visit in Medicare if you were replaced with telemedicine. Okay. You did address this, so but I'll ask anyway. The Congress and or CMS's hesitancy to expand telehealth under Medicare is largely based on this question of whether the services are substitutive or duplicative. So your research is showing that it's substitutive. Right. It doesn't duplicate or just pile on additional utilization. So this is patient self-reported data, but our findings were that uh, 45% of the time, patients would have gone to an urgent care center. So if you look at the cost between urgent care and telemedicine, obviously telemedicine is a lot cheaper. Uh, it was only 6% of the people would have gone to an emergency room. I think people, the reason for that is people know the difference when, you know, you're bleeding, you don't use telemedicine. So, um, uh, 30% would have gone to a physician office. 11% would have otherwise done nothing. And the congressional budget office and others will say, um, that we have induced utilization so that 11% of people that would have otherwise done nothing, you're now offering them an option and they will now cost money. Well, our contention is, those people could get better on their own, but a small percentage or maybe even a large percentage of those people are going to need care at some point because their uh, situation was not addressed. So it's not necessarily that those people down the road won't actually need care and they may be in a more severe situation. Delayed care usually means more intensive care. Exactly. I did mention MedPAC. Now, they did discuss this issue about two weeks ago. And their findings were a bit mixed. What's your sense of where MedPAC is on this? So we've gone and met with the head of MedPAC, Mark Miller, and he definitely was very clear that they see value in telemedicine. Their challenge is that they come at this as having seen years of people parading through their office saying this or that service is going to save money, and they have not yet seen uh, a code that they added payment to that actually resulted in, in savings. So they really just want more and more evidence. And of course, if you look across disease states, it is mixed. Um, the telemedicine uh, benefits for diabetes are less certain than they are for CHF and COPD. And if you even peel the onion around diabetes, the evidence around diabetic retinopathy is very strong, but diabetes itself, there's there's mixed results. So you really have to take this disease by disease, and it really does it does vary. And so again, it's it's it it can be a mixed bag. But I think if you look across, uh, the predominance of evidence is very positive. Okay, okay. There are bills currently introduced in the Congress concerning telehealth. There's, for example, the Medicare Telehealth Parity Act, as well as efforts to expand teleservices under the ACO, Accountable Care Organization Program, and recently passed MACRA legislation, the Medicare Access and Chip Reauthorization Act. What are these efforts, and how hopeful are you for their success? So we have been very heartened by the 
reception that we've gotten in congressional offices on both sides of the aisle. This is a Republican and Democratic issue. It doesn't have anything to do with the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare, which is in our favor. And it's about technology and access to care, which members of Congress all want to be in favor of. So it's a very good political issue. The There are many bills. We are trying to put together a consensus bill that can get everybody on the same page. That bill will likely be introduced in early December, and it will be very bipartisan. The challenge is getting something enacted, and at that our you know the critical point is that we have to show that we're not going to blow the federal budget by allowing you know Medicare to reimburse for telemedicine. So that begs, of course, CBO. So we have again been trying to build the evidence base to try to um, convince CBO. They are very reluctant to use commercial data in making Medicare estimates. So we're in a little bit of a box because. We can't get rid of the originating site restrictions without a statutory change, but we can't make a statutory change until we have Medicare data showing that it saves money. So we're in a little bit of a quandary. So what we've been doing is bringing commercial data to them and saying, you know, if you, in the absence of Medicare data, you should use commercial data. Does that Our, include Medicare? That includes Medicare Advantage data, I would presume. Well, the first robust Medicare Advantage offering is by Anthem, and that started January 1. So we're still waiting for that data run out. We are excited about that data because it is Medicare and it is Medicare patients. There have been some select studies. There was a study this year by the University of Virginia with Medicare patients, really looked at readmission rates. Uh, We do have Avalier looking at this and um, giving a quote-unquote score, which is basically a budget number to what it would cost. So we are going to accompany the introduction of the bill in the early December with an Avalier study showing that it can be done without costing very much money. So it is definitely our focus is how do we convince folks that this isn't going to cost money. So basically it would be revenue neutral? That is our hope. And the idea is that you put enough guardrails around it to guard against what CBO and MedPAC and you know, OMB, the Office of Management and Budget, are worried about, which is uh, overutilization, you know, make it too easy for seniors to dial up their doctors. Uh, so if you, if you put enough guardrails around it uh, and make sure the incentives are not for overutilization, you can get a neutral score. So maybe two last questions or time for two. I did mention using a telehealth in the Accountable Care Organization program or model. There's been an effort to get payment waivers to allow for such. Where are we on that? We had very positive signals from the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS, that they were favorably inclined to pay for telemedicine for ACOs. Our belief is that accountable care organizations need some upfront investments in order to get to a point where they can take risk on populations. We think remote monitoring and telehealth are two of those important tools, but it's very difficult to convince the CFO of a hospital system to invest in something that isn't immediately going to you know, produce uh, revenue. So our contention is if you pay for this on an interim basis, they make the investments, they see that it works. And it helps them get to the next level of taking risk. We were very um, encouraged by the proposed rule that CMS put out, 
They said that essentially um, telehealth and remote monitoring are unambiguously good. The final rule, they did nothing. They said, we didn't have enough time, and we'll consider this as parts of in, later. In the future. Yeah. And they have since come out with several good things. The next-gen ACOs, which is just what it sounds like, the next generation of ACOs, they can pay for telehealth. But that's the um, demonstration. It's a demonstration. The um, They had a, a hip and knee replacement demonstration that includes payment for telehealth. They had a, a value-based insurance design demo that includes telehealth. So they are including it as part of other payment models. But again, it's going to be hard to isolate those variables because it's part of a lot of other things that they're changing. Encouraging sign, but all three of those that you mentioned are all demonstrations. Exactly. My last question. In the literature, you oftentimes read that the provider community in Medicare terminology, eligible professionals, are not that sanguine about telehealth because it seems to erode their time boundaries as it relates to when are they working and when are they not. What's your understanding of receptivity between and amongst uh, clinicians? Well, I'm telling you, these vendors are, you know, overwhelmed with phone calls from physicians that want to be part of their networks. It, their work, they work on a contract basis, and what it does for physicians, it provides enormous amount of flexibility. You can schedule your hours, you can be available when you want to be, and you can work from anywhere. So I do believe for the physicians that don't want to be building an office-based practice, in the past they had you know a locums option. Now they have an option to be uh, actually working from home and having flexible hours using telemedicine. And again, right now it's still a, a really much more of a vendor-based market. Eventually... I believe that forward-thinking physicians will offer their patients in, in a mix of office-based and telemedicine options. And again, that will provide office-based physicians with more flexibility as well. Okay, Krista, thank you for your time. Thank you. Thanks Very for having me. Very helpful and good luck with your legislation. Thank you. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.